This morning we continue our sermon series, Swimming Upstream, Christians and Culture, as we make our way through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Today we hear a passage about the Lord's Supper, this meal that we eat, and it's actually the first written account, some 15 years before the first gospel was written, but the context is really important. So listen to these words from chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you proceeds to eat your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have households to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Dennis Smith was a world-leading expert on ancient Greco-Roman banqueting and the Lord's Supper. The two of them very much related, as it turns out. When I was working on my book, Table Talk, which is about the early church's meal, I got to visit with Dennis on two occasions. One time was in Galveston, Texas, where he had retired. And I grew up not far from there, and so it was a great trip. Over a meal of fried shrimp and grits, this was the South after all, I peppered him with all kinds of questions about his work. Here's one of those questions. Do you think the Apostle Paul would have been an enjoyable dinner companion? He was shocked that I even asked. He said, of course, he would be a delight. It would be so entertaining and interesting and informative. Absolutely. You understand why I asked, don't you? I mean, you heard this letter from Paul where he says, now, if you do this wrong, you, some people die. I mean, my gosh, that doesn't sound like a delightful dinner companion. Have you ever been at one of those dinners where you're afraid to pick up the wrong fork? I mean, okay, so what? But Paul, it's like drinking judgment. It makes sense that I would ask. A week, week and a half ago, something like that, I was interviewed for a podcast by a group called Fresh Expressions out of the Twin Cities, and they wanted to talk about the book, Table Talk. And at the end, he said, so how would you, you know, kind of summarize it? And I said, well, I guess I'd say two J's. One is joy. This was a joyous meal. But the other one is justice. Not judgment, but justice. This is what has Paul upset. 
an injustice at this meal, well, kind of. It's, it's sort of hard to explain. Here, here's the way I would put it. Dennis Smith and others would acknowledge there are things, lots of things we know about how our earliest ancestors in the faith, how the earliest Christians ate this meal. And there are a lot of things we don't know. We do know that throughout the Roman Empire, lots of people, Christians and others, had these banquets in the evening. And these banquets would be fairly small, intimate gatherings, as few as nine people, sometimes a couple of dozen, not anything really big. They would lay on, we'll call them couches, they'd lay on their left side, propped up on their elbow and eat. And besides bread and wine, they had food. They feasted, drinking and eating and enjoying each other's company. We know all that from ancient records and manuscripts, lots of evidence, archaeological. But there are things we don't know, especially of what was going on at Corinth. For instance, for a long time, scholars have said, well, what was happening was the wealthy didn't have to work as much, or maybe not at all, and they were getting there early and eating the good food, and the people who worked in the fields were getting there late, and it was all gone. You ever been late to a potluck supper? It can happen. But lately, scholars have said, I don't think that holds up. We really don't know. For instance, we don't know if it was potluck. It's possible they did have potlucks, and maybe the wealthy were bringing their own food, good food, lots of it, and the poor were bringing their scraps, and so there was this discrepancy. Maybe that was it. Or maybe, because other patterns, maybe a wealthy person was hosting the meal and providing food for everyone, but better food for wealthy friends. That too happened in the ancient world. We don't know. Was Paul a delightful dinner companion? I don't know, but this much I know. Paul cannot abide the fact that some people who had means were getting their fill and others were going hungry. He can't take that. Now, the question then is, how do you apply that to our day? I think in some ways it's like the Supreme Court trying to wrestle with the Constitution. You know, these schools of thought, originalists versus revisionists. Well, when it comes to biblical studies, something similar happens. Last week's a good example. Bryce read a passage about meat sacrificed to idols. Yeah, that's not the least bit relevant to our day. I dare you, I dare anybody in here, I double dare you, to go to High V or Price Chopper, go to the meat department and ask them, do you have any meat sacrificed to idols? and then report back to me. I really want to know what they say. It doesn't apply. So what do you do? You do what Bryce did. You, you look for some kind of principle in our day. Normally you would say, well, if it's a passage about the Lord's Supper, we eat that every week, so it must apply. But it, it doesn't exactly because ours is not part of an evening meal. Here's the thing in Paul. He has this brilliant wordplay on the word supper. He says, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating, you're eating your own supper. Which got me to thinking, I don't know any church where if you're wealthy, we give you garlic bread, and if you're poor, we give you moldy biscuits. We don't make distinctions here, but all of us eating supper have to think about those who aren't. 
What does it mean to think about the people who don't have supper? What would that mean in our day? So here's an analogy. On Monday this past week, my grandkids went to this farm, a nearby farm where they have a kind of a petting zoo area. Now there were baby pigs. They told me all about the baby pigs. The baby pigs were only one or two days old, so they were off with mom. But the baby goats, if you wanted to, you could get a bottle of milk and you could feed a baby goat. Well, guess what? Baby goats, when they see milk, they are aggressive. And my daughter-in-law said, it's a funny thing. The aggressive ones, they're plumper than the others. <laughs> well, yeah, it's called survival of the fittest. But when it comes to humans, it seems to me it's more like survival of the luckiest. Why is it that I was born into a life that allows me to go to brunch and have bottomless mimosas when somebody else was born into a life where they're begging for a dollar to get a burger. I'll give you another analogy. A friend of mine named Drew, who's a financial advisor, was telling me a week ago that this summer his firm has granted him a one-month sabbatical. I was thrilled. I was so over the moon for him. I said, that is fantastic. I said, you know, I had sabbaticals uh, all my life in the seminary and, and one recently at the church, and there's nothing like it. I said, now, there were a lot of people who, when they heard I was on sabbatical, would respond by saying, uh-huh, must be nice, wish I had one. What they really meant was, I shouldn't be getting one. That's what they were saying. Like, why are you getting one? But I always countered by saying, the problem is not that I'm getting a sabbatical. The problem is you're not. Everybody should have sabbatical. Well, when it comes to food, everybody should have food. Good food and enough food. For five years, really a little bit more than that, among other things, I was in charge of making sure we had enough bread and cups for each of the worship services. That was part of my job. And I have to tell you, it gave me the heebie-jeebies every week. I was so worried we would run out. I mean, if we run out of bulletins, it's kind of bad, but, you know, people can share. But it, it just felt to me like if we were passing those trays or people were coming forward and it's empty, it would just be the worst symbolism in the world. So why is it that I was so worried about that but I don't worry at all about the fact that today somebody's going hungry. Not my job. John F. Kennedy and others since have famously said of the economy that a rising tide lifts all boats. Everybody will prosper. Turns out not everybody has a boat. Some people are drowning in this economy, unable to tread water, barely, barely making it. One of the things we remember at this table is that Jesus fed people by the thousands. And there was always enough, leftovers even. I don't always get it right when it comes to feeding the poor. I, I really don't. I've stumbled into it a few times, but a lot of times I pay it no mind. One time, though, I remember where it felt maybe the best. 
I, I'd gone out to eat with some colleagues from the seminary at M&S Grill. Some of you remember when M&S Grill was on the plaza. I still remember what I had, and you'll see why. I had pan-fried tilapia, pecan-crusted pan-fried tilapia, on a bed of risotto with green beans and some really good bread. But I couldn't eat it all, so I got one of those to-go containers, and I had parked blocks away over by Barnes & Noble, because I wanted to go in the bookstore afterwards and see what books were wanting me to read them. <laughs> there was always in front of Barnes & Noble a man. Some of you will remember him. He sat on a bucket, and he had this one little phrase he would say, could you spare a dollar so I can get a hamburger? That's what he said. And sometimes I gave him a dollar, and sometimes I didn't. But this night, I, I realized I had leftovers, and I said, do you like fish? And he lit up. He saw my box, and I said, I have pecan-crusted pan-fried tilapia on a bed of risotto with green beans and a roll, and I opened it up, and his eyes, he was just so excited. And then I realized he doesn't have any utensils. You can't eat that with your hand. And so I remembered, well, Barnes & Noble on the second floor. I went in, went up to that cafe. I got a knife and a fork and a napkin, and I came back down, and I presented it. And it was, it was amazing. It was later that I remembered something, how that cafe on the second floor is right next to the religion section. All those books, some of them about Jesus feeding people. Did you know there is a big difference between reading a book about Jesus feeding people and following his lead? 